VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? Everybody wants to do something. And both Democrats and Republicans believe that the tech platforms have grown too powerful. They decide what you see. That is not something I disagree with. They are very powerful and they do decide what you see. But that's where the common sense of the problem ends. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I'm your host, Danny Fortz, and the West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times, and I'm feeling good. Two days away from having a week off for Thanksgiving, and the plan is to eat until I pass out, and that is it. That's the plan. I can't wait. But before I go off and do that... I wanted to answer a question, which is, how should we feel about social media in 2020? Specifically, the job that Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and the rest are doing when it comes to stopping or slowing disinformation, misinformation, conspiracies, everything else. And obviously, we just had the election, and it made me think back, of course, to 2016 and everything that went wrong there. And now here we are. We just had what appears to have been a free and fair election that was largely free of the kind of big state-sponsored disinformation campaigns that swayed things one way or the other, at least as far as we know right now. But now we are being bombarded with all kinds of conspiracy theories anyway about the election, you know, potential fraud and all that stuff. Of course, a lot of this is being driven by our president. But there's perhaps no one better to give us a social media health check than this week's guest, who is Renee DeResta. Now, Renee is the head of research at the Stanford Internet Observatory, which tracks and dissects all the kind of nefarious stuff that is happening on online at any given time. And during the election, she was actually in a war room with a bunch of other experts tracking exactly what was happening and how various wild conspiracy theories and misinformation, whatever it may be, how that starts, how it spreads, and what the companies then do to try to stop them or slow them down. And it's, it's just really a, a revealing look at the underbelly of the web and kind of how it works. And this kind of running conflict between Silicon Valley and not only the big organized misinformation campaigns, whether it be from Russia or, or Iran or China or, or whomever, but also just this kind of grab bag of crazy stuff that through one way or another, through some kind of algorithmic magic happens to go viral. Now, I can't promise you're going to feel great about the internet after this conversation, but you will be more informed. And knowing is half the battle, as they used to say in G.I. Joe. So yeah, you'll just get a better sense of what's happening out there and where the next battle lines are already being drawn. So without further ado, I give you Renee DeResta of the Stanford Internet Observatory. Enjoy. Before we jump into what's been happening the last few months or generally on the internet, can you just explain kind of who you are and what 
the Stanford Internet Observatory is? Because when I hear observatory, I think of like, I grew up in San Jose and Mount Hamilton has an observatory, which is basically a big telescope that looks at the stars. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Our logo is the Stanford dish, the big, uh, big satellite. Yeah. So the Stanford Internet Observatory is a multidisciplinary program that looks at abuse of the internet with a focus on social media. So I should misuse of the internet. And so that takes the form of things like mis and disinformation, uh, but it also beyond that very more, more visible side of the work also looks at things like trust and safety issues, the incorporation of new technologies and how those technologies will be used. So things like generative AI or uh, end-to-end encryption, you know, how, to, how, to, how does the emergence of new technology change our use of the internet? Okay. So the last few months have been, let's say, interesting with the election and everything going up to that. And then obviously what is happening now with the dispute of the results by the president and others. And I thought, and you can tell me whether this makes sense or not, but we could just kind of, as a starting point, go Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and kind of give them a grade of how <laughs> they how they have done. And we can kind of dig into some of that. Because I think it's really interesting how these different companies are approaching speech and abuse and misinformation. We had um, John Mates, the founder of Parler, on here yeah. last month, who was interesting he was difficult to kind of pin down on some of the stuff but he obviously is just like anything's fair game effectively they do moderate but it's a different um it's a different focus right it's 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 how do you create a community that speaks to values of a very small segment of the population that is one of many populations on the bigger platforms yeah. so it's, it's a little bit of a different um series of design thoughts and, and moderation frameworks that go into that yeah, exactly. They have like a, their, what they call their jury. Each of the platforms operates in a different role. So it's, it's, it's hard to compare them against each other in that the things that are very impactful on one platform, if, if done on another platform, because the affordances for virality or sharing are different, uh, wouldn't have the same impact. So I'm trying to think about the extent to which they, they took their potential for impact seriously and, uh, and, and shut down as many of the potentially problematic vectors as possible. So for Facebook, you know, they have a, a different dynamic, right? Groups is, I think, one of the most significant challenges on Facebook. I've, uh, I've, for my sins, I've joined a bunch of Facebook groups for various different stories I've been writing. And it's, there are some really interesting worlds in groups. Yeah, it, it's, it's definitely, it's a fascinating place. I mean, I use them personally myself. That's actually, I think, the vast majority of my time on Facebook, even just as, a, as an ordinary person, is, mm. is in groups. And once you're in some of the active ones, um, that's all that's in your feed. I mean, yeah. the vast majority of, of my notifications are, you know, I'm um, <laughs> homeschooling kids like everybody else. And uh, yeah. so I'm in a lot of the parent groups that are talking about the homeschooling process, the reopening process, pressuring the school board to act, you know, to do something. And so almost the entirety of my Facebook feed now is like this, uh, this little activist community that's, that's using it for that. And, and that's kind of the point, right? I mean, it helps you find people with your interests. It helps you plug into those spaces. My feed now is a mix of coffee enema support group. Oh boy. Yeah. And uh, a bunch of reopen groups, uh, which are very angry about face masks and the apparent threat to gun ownership, et cetera. But as you say, it's very active and it helps people find, for better and worse, helps people find other like-minded people. 
Right. And that's exactly the challenge, right? How do you not kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater in the sense of you want people to be able to find communities? Um, civically engaged people are generally a, a good thing. You got to remember also this is a global platform, not just in the U.S. And so the infrastructure can be used. You know, what what is that that saying? Uh, you know, a tool in one person's hand is a weapon in another, right? You know, so the the hammer that builds your house can also be used as a weapon. And so the challenge is how do you think about taking steps or either through design or through moderation and enforcement to minimize the bad while allowing that maximum you know freedom of expression and community formation on the platform. And so when you have that situation, I think what we saw from Facebook, and I'll speak particularly to Election Day, is the efforts that they were making to fact check as quickly as possible, right? To get that context, to, to add more contextualization to the wild claims that were popping up. Because what we were seeing is in local community groups, on local community pages, there was misinformation that was very much focused on the immediate kind of the immediate community. So I'm in Michigan, there's an allegation of voter fraud in Michigan in this way, or let me use Arizona as an example. Arizona, there was a huge blow up about Sharpie markers, came to be called Sharpie Gate. I didn't quite understand Sharpie Gate, I gotta be honest. <laughs> I mean, I'm happy to explain. Because <laughs> <laughs> we have a lot of overseas listeners. So if you wouldn't mind giving a quick explainer, I'm sure this is what you want to do today, but. So in the state of Arizona, um, so all 50 states have different voting, uh, either machines or terminals or practices, uh, types of ballots. So Arizona in this Maricopa County was using uh, Scantron, not Scantron, the brand, but uh, the process by which you bubble in a circle and you feed it through the, uh, through the machine. So generally, in a lot of cases, particularly for Scantron, actually, um, Sharpie markers don't work. You're supposed to use a certain type, you know, a blue or black pen. Sometimes they require you to use a pencil. So there's a, a specific type of marking that the machine can read. And so this rumor began to go around that Sharpie markers were not readable by the voting machines in this district. And then that turned conspiratorial and that turned into poll workers were giving out Sharpies in communities that were likely to vote for Trump. And so the allegation, the insinuation was that Trump voters were disproportionately impacted by being given these Sharpie markers, which would lead to their ballots not being counted. And that was a you know form of voter fraud and disenfranchisement. And so the local media and the state election officials tried very hard to kind of counter this narrative. But once it becomes a thing that people are kind of feeding off of each other in a group or there's a particular page that goes and live streams from outside the vote counting facility, which was what wound up happening. Then it turns into, it really kind of snowballs into a thing. There's a lot of emotion and outrage at that point. And that was what happened with SharpieGate. So you saw people showing up, marching with signs about how, you know, with waving Sharpies in some cases, um, about how their votes had been stolen from them and demanding a revote. The reason why Arizona all of a sudden became popular was that it was called uh, for Joe Biden. So it had been a state that had been believed to be in play, significantly in play. And and Fox News actually was one of the first that called it for Biden. And Fox News has generally been kind of a stalwart supporter of the president. And so that also led to additional outrage as 
people began to feel that somehow, you know, Fox News was in on this conspiracy as well. And so a lot of people were also chanting, you know, Fox News sucks and Fox News lies and a bunch of other, you know, there's a sort of remarkable immediate pushback. Yeah, which I never thought I would ever, ever hear about a bunch of pro-Trumpers shouting down Fox News, which is... That was a surprise for me, I think. I mean, that was an extraordinary flip. It happened almost instantaneously. Like concurrently with the call, you mentioned Parler. So of course, at the Internet Observatory, what we were doing for the two months leading into Election Day was we had a project called the Election Integrity Partnership with University of Washington Center for an Informed Public, with Graphica, which is a tech company that does a lot of network analysis and understanding how communities and messages move, and then Digital Forensics Research Lab at the Atlantic Council, which also does a lot of disinformation research. And so our four institutions worked together with a bunch of civil society organizations, with CISA, CISA Krebs, (laughs) and with the... Uh, Let's see who else was in there. Um, The tech platforms were part of the effort, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, and then some investigative journalists were also um, sort of part of the the broader community. So what we were doing was in the months leading up to election day, two months leading up to it, and then on election day, we had a in-person war room looking at narratives that were spreading. And so understanding how narratives were hopping from platform to platform so something maybe started on a public facebook page we only on facebook we stayed in the public spaces so public groups public pages but if something would appear in one of those groups one of the interesting dynamics was for example early in the day philadelphia had been a source of some you know some rumors and so the at philly gop twitter account would say something and it would appear on parlor almost instantaneously on a page of a, an activist who seemed to be following all of the different you know, she, she kind of became the hub for a lot of these reposting of allegations of manipulation that had appeared on other platforms so she was aggregating them on parlor they would pop up in a facebook group somebody would go make a live stream on youtube there are a lot of these live streams going through the day where people very prominent people with very large audiences were just constantly streaming and even as the platforms were trying to fact check urls or text commentary they would the the same identical content was being aired in the form of live streams and so to bring youtube into this so that was one of the dynamics that you encounter on youtube so again that is in my opinion a harder moderation challenge how do you moderate in real time uh in in a live stream who is are people sitting there watching that there's a lack of granularity there also are you going to take down the whole stream if one person says a thing that you're trying to action against you know there's also you know talk radio is a thing it's it's not like you can prevent people from speculating in in audio format but at the same time those streams lend themselves to being kind of clipped and cut and even further reduced from context after the fact and then incorporated into yet another stream or or posted as a clip on twitter and so the challenge became fielding all of these different disparate incidents that were popping up all over the us which as the night wore on more and more people tried to spin into a kind of grand unified theory of election theft Yes, across multiple states and multiple authorities, all some vast coordinated conspiracy, which... Exactly. And so that is the dynamic that we were trying to understand. So here are these isolated incidents. So we used a ticketing system, right? So here are isolated tickets where if we need to search Philadelphia, we, we can quickly find all the things that have popped up. How many tickets did you track? Over the course of the project... We definitely broke a thousand, but in on election day, I, I would say maybe 
maybe half were on election day. I feel like we got from like <laughs> wow. 500 into the high 800s just in election day. On something like Sharpie Gate, for example. Yeah. How granular can you get? Can you get back to the point of origin? Because I'm so fascinated by, you know, the sometimes things like with QAnon, which we can get to, but like some of the crazy QAnon stuff, like I'm interested to see like how that starts and then where how it kind of really goes viral and kind yeah. of spreads everywhere. So it's easiest to do that for a URL or if there's a hashtag that is a, a word or phrase that's never been used before. And so for both of those things, we are actually pretty adept at that. My pinned tweet on my Twitter profile is uh, is exactly the kind of trace you're talking about, looking at the pandemic video, how that hopped, where that moved from and to, how do we classify the communities that shared it, again, through the public space. So the visibility into the private spaces is not there, but you know this is how to balance research with privacy, right? And so we are pretty capable at, at doing those sorts of things. And again, with Election Integrity Partnership in particular, we wanted to make sure that our partners, you know, that we all kind of rounded out, you know, brought different types of expertise to the table as far as technical capabilities and analytical capabilities. And so, you know, Kate Starbird's team does pretty amazing work on Twitter, just looking at where a tweet originated and how it kind of exploded. Is there a playbook or is it kind of just shot in the dark and then all of a sudden something takes off or is it more deliberate than that so there's connective tissue between communities so i'll, I'll speak to um something like pandemic for example started you know it, it was first took hold in the anti-vaccine community but that's not a surprise because judy mikovitz had has been an anti-vaxxer for a, over a decade and so they knew her the brand was established you know trusted figure etc but there are these sort of, with it, unfortunately, Facebook's recommendation engine led to the building of these communities, and QAnon is part of this actually, was through what's called collaborative filtering. It recommends a group to you if it thinks that you are likely to be interested in that topic. Yeah. And that's not because you have previously evidenced any interest. You've never searched for it. You've never demonstrated interest. But statistically, you are like someone else, and that person likes that thing. Ergo, yeah. it's going to show it to you, and you can join or not join. And by by either acting or not acting, you're providing more information about your interests and, and your kind of, you know, what, what kinds of communities you'd want to be in. So over the period of this happening for years, you know, back in 2015, uh, you know, 2016, anti-vaccine accounts started getting referred into Pizzagate groups, right? QAnon became this sort of vast omni-conspiracy in large part because QAnon groups were promoted to people who were in other conspiratorial communities. Right. Because if you distrust the government on vaccines and you think that they're lying to you that vaccines cause autism or, you know, the stupidest theory I've seen, you know, <laughs> I try not to be judgmental, but yesterday I got one that was like, aluminum in vaccines is making us uh, antennas for 5G. And I thought like, oh God, you know, here we are. So these- Oh, we're, we're, ante we're antennas. Yeah, we're antennas now. And that's, and that's what the COVID vaccine is going to do to us also was where this theory was going. But um, So does that mean I can just like talk through my pinky? I, I mean, who even knows? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Every now and then, you know, sorry, I shouldn't use like words like stupid maybe, but it, it was just one of the, uh, every now and then you see something and you're like, how are 50,000 people sharing this? But the problem is once you're in kind of immersed in these communities, it is in fact people who become conduits for the stuff. Yeah. So people who are in one community, let's use pandemic as the example, see this video in their anti-vaccine group. And then they're also in a QAnon group. So they go and they share it into the QAnon group. 
And then someone who's in a QAnon group who is maybe not an anti-vaxxer, but is in a pro-Trump community, for example, there's a mm. lot of overlap there, will go and will share it into their more mainstream Make America Great Again community. And then in there, there are people who are not Q, who are just regular supporters of President Trump, uh, who also are involved in their motorcycle club, right? And again, yeah. they've just seen this compelling, fascinating video in their MAGA group. And so that's how it makes it into the motorcycle group page. So people who are curious about the content serve as the ways in which it kind of hops uh, within these different communities. And then, of course, it's shared out to other platforms as well, because, again, let's say the person who is active in the President Trump supporter group on Facebook is also a member of a President Trump supporter community on Twitter. And so they go and they share it there. Yeah. And so this is just how information spreads. And, and the challenge for the platforms is, what, you know, what do you do about the dynamics in which people are actively interested and motivated, you're not going to take that away just because you moderate doesn't mean you're going to eliminate demand for the content or curiosity about the content. And so the challenge that we see now is how do you contextualize the content? How do you, so when someone sees the pandemic video and they're not a diehard anti-vaxxer, they're just a person in the motorcycle group, how do they see it shared alongside a fact check or a or an explainer that helps, you know, helps people understand what is actually uh, kind of at work there. And so a lot of the, I guess, frontier in, in some of the research now is thinking about rather than using takedowns, if you take something down after 2 million people have seen it, you've just turned it into forbidden knowledge and more people are going to want to see it, right? You're going to, you've started a whole secondary story about censorship. So how do you not do that while at the same time recognizing that some of this content is deeply harmful either to public health or to trust in the integrity of an election uh, and recognizing that, how do you think through where to label, what to label, when to use the takedown, when to throttle, how do you use the tools at your disposal to try to address the very real kind of negative downstream effects of this being the most viral engaged content on your platform. And that's, uh, that's kind of where we are today. This podcast was brought to you thanks to the support of readers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and get one month free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Your experience in the war room, I mean, what, how was that? Were, were you surprised by, you know, this, this blooming of all of these stories on Election Day in particular? Or is that what you expected? Did you expect more? Did you expect less? Was it more pernicious? Or just trying to get a sense of 2020 four years on from 2016 kind of where we are and how we should be thinking about this should be we be more worried i feel like we should be more worried but i don't have a complete picture 
We were not surprised. <laughs> Nobody had Sharpie, you know, Sharpie markers on the bingo card, but the claim that procedural things related to voting were corrupt or that kind of thinking we expected to see. Our teams had actually put out sort of a post about a week before the election, before election day saying, this is what we expect to see on election day. Here's what we expect to see, sorry, leading up to on election day. And then in the period after actually, and that kind of attempts to erode trust in the outcome, uh, the sort of sustained aggregating of theories you know, 600 ballots were found in some county. Okay, well, yes, you know, there are irregularities in certain counties that does not translate to, you know, a vast Soros-funded conspiracy to, you know, or what is the the actual conspiracy that's going around the uh, Hammer Scorecard Dominion conspiracy. So the Dominion voting machines are in some way compromised, and there's various explanations for Trump is uh, is tweeting about Dominion many times a day now. Right. And so that one has taken off. One of the things that we expected to see was uh, a bunch of different narratives floated. And then the ones that stick are the ones that um, have longer staying power. Sharpie Gate wound up being very regional. It kind of peaked over a period of two days and then kind of died back out. But what happened, Sharpie Gate overlapped with a hashtag called Stop the Steal. And that's a nice, you know, alliterative chant that people can you know can pick up and so it doesn't require a lot of thinking to understand you know what it is it's pretty pretty out there so stop the steal became the hashtag and then the mechanism by which the election was stolen purportedly uh, was where this dominion voting machines kind of came into play prior to the elections around november 1st or 2nd a guest on one of steve bannon's podcasts i believe a, a former general if i'm not mistaken had advanced this theory that there was a secret CIA supercomputer named Hammer that changed votes by way of this software called Scorecard, and that the CIA this was what the CIA used to, you know, change votes in assorted other countries. This was as the conspiracy went. I don't think there's any, you know, kind of truth or grounding in, in even that claim. But the claim was, and this was where it got wild. Uh, well, this is where it got wilder. Maybe President Obama had used this to get elected in 2012. And then for some reason, they didn't use it on Hillary. That part is never really explained. But then Joe Biden used the secret supercomputer uh, to, you know, to siphon votes and flip votes. And I mean, speaking those words out loud, I think sounds absurd to probably the majority of your audience. But this was a thing that as people are going through a motivated reasoning process, looking for ways to justify why the candidate that they wanted and expected to win, in fact, lost, that's where you start to see these echo chambers really becoming, in my opinion, dangerous in that whether it's a Facebook group or people posting on Parler or people hanging out in, in Twitter DMs, it's ultimately people who have who've come to hold this belief that the outcome is illegitimate and are just looking for justifications at this point. And so any justification that a prominent influencer puts out there is picked up by people who trust that influencer. And this is the dynamic of the sort of fragmentation of media actually, right? Is that we're not all getting our uh, our news from trusted sources or, or even organizations that commit to journalistic integrity. Uh, instead, we have this sort of, I, don't, I hesitate to even use the term citizen journalist because that was the, you know, originally that term was intended to mean people who had phones and could document real events as they occurred. 
Instead, what we got was this sort of weird like demi-media that positions itself in opposition to the media, tells you the media is lying while streaming to its 500,000 viewers, you know? <laughs> and, uh, so they are the media also, um, yeah. but they're, it's sort of a different commitment to the facts. And yet they occupy places of significant influence within their communities. And this is how you start to see belief in these wild conspiracies by people who desperately want to believe mm. really become incorporated into the community. And that, that's the dynamic that we unfortunately expected to see. And in fact, are seeing the specifics of CIA supercomputers and Sharpie markers, you know, again, the narrative changes, but ultimately what is happening is people want to believe that the president has been reelected and are looking for evidence of the theft that they are absolutely sure has occurred. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you because, and I told the story before on the podcast, but I, I did a story on the wildfires and I went up into kind of central Northern California um, near Lake Oroville, this little community called Berry Creek, where like half the casualties of the state happened in this community of a thousand people up in the mountains. And talking to people there and they're obviously completely distraught. They've lost everything having a normal kind of conversation you'd expect from somebody whose life has just been completely upended. And then it just took a turn. And it was like, all of a sudden, we were talking about the Democrats had lighted the fires, because this part of California is Republican. And then it was like, well, and you know what the Democrats are about to do? And I was like, no. And they're like, oh, well, they're about to pass this law to make the age of consent, sexual consent, four years old. And then somebody else joined in and be like, yeah, that's happening. It's unbelievable. It's crazy. These Democrats. And it was just kind of like, whoa. <laughs> you know, it was, it was yeah. kind of a, a confronting these kind of wackadoodle things you see online and seeing how that actually is invading. the. It is a real world thing. Yeah, it is. And the same thing with people like waving Sharpie markers outside of a counting station in Arizona. And so you've been studying this stuff for a while when we think about this stuff 2016 is like this feels like a moment of like oh this stuff can be used in pretty powerful ways so 2020 how should we be feeling about the governing of social media and its role in kind of being a force to divide people or to spread conspiracy theories or to sow hate and all this stuff because it does feel like it's even if it's not like a massive like Russian interference was this thing that happened on the platform. It feels like it's, it's in a way more diffuse, but perhaps more uh, dangerous. First, I think it's, it's global. And mm. on the subject of who can do it, the answer is, unfortunately, you know, a whole lot of different actors can run influence operations, right? And, and that's because uh, it's low cost. It's not very hard to execute. And also there's not very much in the way of consequences, right? So you you lose your accounts, okay, you know, um, and you make new ones. So I think thinking through the recognition that this very powerful communication infrastructure in our other communication infrastructures, speaking in terms of the US, radio, television, you know, there are laws that govern what kinds of things can be shown on those those spaces. And I think more importantly though, there are things like, you know, tape delays even, right? How do you think about the transition into live streaming, which is something I think we're gonna actually see a whole lot more of. Okay, so as everybody's live streaming, you know, is there a something that we draw on from tape delays in television, or do we just say, no, this is a new thing, let's 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 treat it differently. I think we've been trying to think about the 
dynamics, you know, the, the two things that are really new, I would say, are the um, the velocity and virality. Or uh, let me let me say, well, let's pretend that's one thing. <laughs> um, but <laughs> the speed at which it moves and the ease with which yeah. people facilitate it, right? So the velocity yeah. and virality piece. And then the other thing I would say that's that's kind of distinctly different is the curation, right? So on broadcast TV, you can change the channel, but once you're watching the channel, everybody's watching that same channel. Whereas on uh, on Facebook or any of these other platforms, your feed is curated for you. And that is, of course, they do a phenomenal job at um, generating revenue in, in part because of that that targetability, right? The remarkable granularity with which they understand, um, you know, have a model of what their users are. And that's different. And so also the curation function that kind of goes along with that is that rather than everybody seeing the same general scope of stories, you do instead see people being moved into these echo chambers by way of what the recommendation engines think they want to see or the communities the recommendation engine thinks that they should join. So I think rethinking curation and rethinking virality are two things that are very much uh, have to be the focus of our understanding of what this particular facet of the information ecosystem can engender. Are either of those factors different or more ex pronounced than they were? And I'm just using 2016 just because it's a convenient way to think about the passage of time and the kind of events. So what Russia did is no different than what... So Russia did it subversively, right? They kind of hid who they were, but we had seen ISIS develop a virtual caliphate and use the platforms for mass propaganda, uh, very overt propaganda. I got into this by looking at the anti-vaccine movement actually back in 2015 and just looking at how they networked with particular affinity groups to try to grow their big tent, to grow it from being just, you know, it's it's still, I think, in some people's mind, this, you know, holistic mummies in Southern California. But what they were actually doing was using the platforms to find people who were like-minded on a particular issue. So the idea that vaccination is vast government overreach appeals to people who think that many different things are vast government overreach. So they kind of really leaned into trying to get at the Tea Party libertarian sort of set. And the connections that were laid down back then in 2015, when it was the Tea Party, so even prior to President Trump and, and the direction that it went, those connections were made five years ago. And those connections are what is driving a lot of the reopen protests today, because they have those networks that are in place from back then. And they're able to draw on that immediately when they need to get a rally together or or push content out on social media. So networked activism is not going away. We began to see indications of how powerful it could be in 2012, right, during the Arab Spring. So the recognition that this is not just stuff that stays online, right? These conspiracy theories don't remain online. They actually have an impact in, you know, what <laughs> what we used to call like IRL, right? The real world. And, uh, and now I, I think that that distinction, we used to also separate out this distinction between media and social media. Uh, and again, now that's just a one boiling mass, you know, where sometimes the stories come from the top, other times they come from, you know, somebody on Twitter said, and then it becomes nightly news, right? I think understanding the dynamics at play, I think now we've had about four years to you know, get our heads around that. But even though we could predict what was going to happen in the 2020 election, as far as the social media conversations, we couldn't prevent it, right? And that's because the demand for it is there. You can't censor away the desire, you know, or the belief that the election has been stolen. There's, that's, it's just not how, it doesn't work. So instead, I think where we have to go now is recognizing that a lot of these problems that manifest online, the internet is the infrastructure, but the lack of trust is not a 
function of the internet. It is perhaps fed by these environments, but it preceded that. And so we have to be thinking about it a little bit more as how do we improve literacy? How do we improve education? How do we make conspiracies less appealing to people? One of the ways that we have to do that is by restoring trust in government and institutions. This is the challenge that faces in our country, the incoming administration. But again, this is a this is a global thing. And while the story of 2016 was how Russia did it, the story of 2020 is how domestic influencers can do it. Yeah, like a Steve Bannon podcast or just somebody who's particularly popular in an anti-vax group, for example. Right. Exactly. And what is your sense of the social media companies' kind of recognition of what you just said and how they are thinking about it? Oh, they absolutely know. There's no yeah. there's no secret. There's no 2016 was still the um, you know, what was Mark Zuckerberg's line, you know, there's no way that fake news on Facebook had an impact, right? I think yeah, we walked yeah, that yeah. back pretty quickly. And then also the Russia thing, we didn't really have a full understanding of the scope of that until mid to late 2017 actually late 2017 right around this time three years ago was when they turned over the data sets to uh to the intelligence committee and and we began to realize that it was in fact you know hundreds of thousands of people on these pages and <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. this was not a, a small um you know again sometimes it's compared to well more people watch fox news yes of course that's true but the 500,000 people that they chose to target did engage with this content regularly and so it, it's again understanding the uh I, I don't think the platforms have any doubt of their capacity for influence at this point. And I think that's why you've seen the areas that they have chosen to prioritize coronavirus and health misinformation and election integrity are recognition of the fact that these are high value targets that bad actors are trying to manipulate. Uh, and also that having information, having accurate information in these two areas is you know, a matter of life and death if it's your health and a matter of the kind of continuity of the republic, if you will, in terms of democratic elections. On that COVID point, is there anything different that the social media platforms are doing to kind of control, you know, that we are being turned into 5G antenna type things? <laughs> um, because I think that is obviously, you know, we've had the vaccine news in the last week or so, you know, that is going to get hotter. And it just feels like, to your point, it is a matter of life and death. And it's a global thing. So at SIO, you know, we, are, we do a lot of work on health misinformation tracking. Also, we have a thing called the Virality Project, and, and we work on, on understanding those narratives. To answer your question, that video that was sent to me with the conspiracy about the 5G antennas, it already had a Facebook interstitial over it. So I had to click in to watch the video. But like I said, there were about 50,000 shares and 20,000 comments. And I read through some of the comments because this is how you get a sense of, you know, okay, maybe people are hate sharing it, right? Maybe they're like, yeah, these, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. look at this stupid theory. Yeah. Uh, but no, that wasn't what was happening because as you read it, you can see that there were sort of two rough threads in the comments. One was, it's so great that we know this now, you know, the truth is finally coming out. And then the second thread was, anytime I see a video that Facebook has put a warning over, um, I know that they're just trying to censor the truth and I make sure to watch it. So that's the other piece of this. So just because it has the fact check doesn't mean the fact check is internalized and taken in good faith. And this was true of Sharpie Gate as well. You know, local, uh, one of the local Arizona news stations, you know, did the thankless work of making an infographic and explaining in, you know, bullets, like how your, your Sharpie ballot was just fine. And it was shared into some of these communities with the exhortation that people go and leave a comment on the local news page 
uh, telling them that the Patriots of Arizona recognized that they were bought and that this was all, a, you know, that this was part of the conspiracy, in fact. And so fact check is not a magic cure-all. It is still ultimately about how do we think about trust? Who are the people that these communities trust? And which of them can provide the truth about the vaccination or you know can counter these kinds of things and unfortunately for some of the communities it's not clear that there is anyone and you know we have to i guess uh at this point try to gauge what percentage of the population that's actually become yeah Lastly, in terms of, uh, you know, it seems like there's a tech hearing every week on <laughs> Capitol Hill. Yes. Um, it just seems like now it's just like congressmen yelling at tech CEOs. But there does seem to be kind of a growing acceptance from both parties that Section 230, you know, the immunity shield for third-party content, et cetera, something needs to be done there. Because you talk about, like, whether it's tape delays or the rules that govern a newspaper or a news, uh, TV station, there does need to be something there. I mean, how do you view that? Do you agree with that general thrust? Or are you, and are you worried about how this may actually turn out given, well, you know? So the first tech hearing was almost three years ago, maybe three years and a month or something. Mm -hmm. um, Cause I worked on helping write the questions for it back in 2017. Right. And they're asking the same questions now actually. And so one of the challenges is there hasn't been the bipartisan ability to actually pass legislation, right? So maybe yeah. we see that change in the Biden administration. But then the other bigger thing, is that everybody wants to do something. And both Democrats and Republicans believe that the tech platforms have grown too powerful. They decide what you see. Now, that is that is not something I disagree with. They are very powerful and they do decide what you see. But that's where the kind of common sense of the problem ends. And mm -hmm. then you have the Republicans who believe that they decide what you see and they're showing you and they're censoring conservatives, right? Yeah. And so they want the platforms to show you more. They believe, yes. you know, Senator Kennedy's line of questioning yesterday was, uh, why can't the people be trusted to make up their own minds? Why are you even fact-checking has been recast as censorship. The platforms are taking an editorial view, they're alleging that is anti-conservative when a conservative site is fact-checked as telling a nonsense story. Meanwhile, on the left, there's a desire for more moderation, you know, for all sorts of things that when someone feels harassed or offended that, you know, that that kind of content be dealt with more stringently, rethinking what falls under the rubric of hate speech, under the rubric of harassment. And again, these are very subjective things. Some, something that is offensive to someone maybe is not offensive to someone else. Something that makes someone feel attacked maybe doesn't make another person feel attacked. And so again, the dynamics there, roughly speaking, on the, on the speech front, they're not moderating enough. They should be taking down more. And so this is where you have polar opposites you know, in terms of um, you know, diagnosis of the problem that they're too powerful. Yes, everybody's in agreement on that. But then after that, there really isn't a place where I've seen a whole lot of bipartisan consensus. I think, again, the Biden, you know, the transition team has uh, made clear that they're going to have a task force that looks at online harassment and speech. I imagine there'll be something related to mis and disinformation. And you know, the question at this point becomes, can they come up with ways to put on guardrails that are appealing to both political parties, given how entrenched each side is in its positions today? Those are all my questions. But you actually never gave me the grades for Facebook and, oh. uh, <laughs> Facebook and, and YouTube. I would say... You know, they were all roughly in the, I think YouTube is a little slower to act and a little less yeah. 
transparent, right? And that's that I think is one of the challenges. The transparency is a double-edged sword. It means that people can see when Twitter and Facebook put out their monthly takedowns, right? They've started mm. to batch them monthly saying, here are the four influence operations we uncovered this month. It can create the perception that that means that there is a overwhelming amount of terrible material on their platforms. And, you know, then that's because they're managing it badly as opposed to this is an adversary, you know, this is an adversarial environment. And in fact, these takedowns and announcements are a good thing that shows that they're finding them and they're disclosing them and, you know, they're not keeping it hidden from the public. YouTube does much less in the way of those disclosures, perhaps as a result of that gets much less in the way of questioning. So by not disclosing, it's sort of like that thing over there, whereas uh, Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg are constantly getting hauled in front of Congress. You know, the some of the smaller platforms, I got to say, like TikTok was incredibly on top of it. Also, you know, they were oh, really they are a really interesting entity in that they've had the opportunity to see the disaster of the last four years, <laughs> 2016, you know, is like, okay, that, let, that is the cautionary tale. We are yes. not going to let that be us, you know, and to, in response, Pinterest is another one where there are certain platforms that have just decided that the purpose of their platform is entertainment and, you know, or, or to make you feel a certain way to make you feel good. Right. And, yeah. and so curating their spaces, to try to account for that, basically saying like, you know what, we're not going to let Pinterest become a vast hub of anti-vaccine pins. You know, this is not what Pinterest is for. And yeah. this is the, you know, the the moderation framework uh, that we're using in our terms of service. And if you don't like it, there are other places for you. Similarly, you know, just to end kind of where we began, that's how Parler is, uh, is choosing to operate as well, right? We're creating a place where they do moderate and they're moderating certain things away, but they're moderating in accordance with the wishes of the community that they're trying to serve. Yeah. So we don't want to see that become an echo chamber where people, you know, radicalize and believe that, you know, that the president of the United States is illegitimate, but there is at the same time a demand for um, for this space. And so as long as the big platforms are moderating a way that they don't like, they're going to go somewhere. And that's what we're starting to see with that. You got your work cut out. It's busy. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, um, thank you for taking the time. It's always uh, fascinating to kind of get a sense from what's happening on the coalface. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Renee for taking the time. I want to thank you all for taking the time to listen. I was—I should say, I am off, but there will be a podcast next week because I love you. And yeah, you got to keep the, the machine ticking over. So there will be a pod next week, even though I will not officially be working. So keep an eye out for that. And that is it. You can always find me, as I always say, on Twitter at Danny Fortson. You can email me, danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. I'll be writing about some of what we spoke about here in this weekend in the Sunday Times. You can find that on at thetimes.co.uk. And lastly, you can give me a rating and a review if you so desire. I certainly desire takes a moment helps other people find the show so please do that and i will talk to you next week stay safe stay sane y'all bye as you're listening to me daisy apple's iphone disassembly robot is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. 
That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone.